We are a nation that has a government, not the other way around. And this makes us special among the nations of the earth. Our government has no power except that granted it by the people. It is time to check and reverse the growth of government, which shows signs of having grown beyond the consent of the governed. For decades, we have piled deficit upon deficit, mortgaging our future and our children's future for the temporary convenience of the present. You and I, as individuals, can, by borrowing, live beyond our means, but for only a limited period of time. Why then should we think that collectively, as a nation, we're not bound by that same limitation? We hear much of special interest groups. Well, our concern must be for a special interest group that has been too long neglected. It is made up of men and women who raise our food, patrol our streets, man our mines and factories, teach our children, keep our homes, and heal us when we're sick. Professionals, industrialists, shopkeepers, clerks, cabbies, and truck drivers. They are, in short, we the people. It is time for us to realize that we're too great a nation to limit ourselves to small dreams. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. We, as Americans, have the capacity now as we've had in the past to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. With God's help, we can and will resolve the problems which now confront us. And after all, why shouldn't we believe that? We are Americans. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light or transient causes, and accordingly all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this... Let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for their tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat our substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation, for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to 
be tried for pretend offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He has at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfect scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taking captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions." In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble of terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. Happy 4th of July to you and to your family. You're listening to The Friddle Show on KVXL 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. We open the show today with uh, Reagan, uh, the American for Prosperity, their video, We Are America, super inspirational. I hope you were as inspired as I was. And then, of course, that was the reading of the Declaration of Independence, which was signed by 56 of our founding fathers. 
Have you ever read the whole thing? It's pretty, it's pretty powerful, pretty dramatic. And I hope that you are enjoying this day. This is a good day. This is a day to celebrate. Because, you know, no matter how many terrible things happen in the world today, and there will be many, there is so much that we have to be grateful for. And Reagan mentioned many of them in the clip that I played earlier. What this nation founded in liberty has accomplished in its short existence is nothing short of miraculous. The advancement of technology, the modernization of the world through American missionaries, the attempted duplication of the American idea of freedom has been tried all throughout the world since our founding. And I know there's a huge push today to make America great again. We need to be careful that we, in that process that we don't forget how great America already is. I mean, spend a week in Sierra Leone, West Africa. Spend a week in North Korea. Spend a week in Honduras. Pick your favorite third world country. Pick your favorite communist country. It won't take you long to realize just how great America already is. I mean, people are risking their lives to enter our country every day. And they're not coming here because we're all miserable people with miserable lives. They're coming here because of the success that we've seen as a nation, because of the promise and the hope of America. Now, are there those who are abusing the system that they're not coming here for a better life but to have one handed to them on a golden platter? Sure. But I'd argue that they're in the minority. And not only do we need to be very careful not to forget how great America is, but we need to be careful not to forget what made her great in the first place. Because America isn't great simply in an economic sense. And oftentimes it's easy for us who are Christians to sit back, to get like Elijah and to come before God in agony and say, I'm the only one. I'm the only godly one. My family, my church, we're the only godly ones. Our nation is in ruin spiritually. There's, we're the only ones that care. There's nothing good left here. There's no one else who fears you or who's willing to take a stand up to the evil in our country today. And I just picture God looking at us in a compassion, with a compassionate smile and saying, it's okay. Get up. You're not the only one. Did you know that there are 285 million evangelicals in the United States? And that's just evangelicals. You're not the only one. You know, our pastor, Pastor David Tice here in Liberty, mentioned some statistics in our Celebrate America, I Love America services yesterday. And I thought it was it was so good because, you know, so often we get stuck on how our nation is falling apart that we we don't realize that that there are people like us out there. You know, one in ten Americans, so 10% of Americans are addicted to drugs. And that's terrible. But you know what that means? That means that 90% of Americans are not. You know, one in 12 American adults, 8.3% abuse alcohol. That means that, what, 91.7% of Americans do not. Did you know that graduation rates hit a record high of 81% in our country in 2013? Did you know that no matter what the Supreme Court says or how often you might see gay or lesbian uh, characters or couples portrayed on the latest sitcom that less than 4% of Americans self-identify as LGBT? Did you know that though we have killed 
millions upon millions of our own children, which, by the way, there's a really interesting study, you should Google it sometime, where if, if we did not have abortion and we hadn't aborted our children, that we would not have any national debt right now. It's really intriguing. But did you know that 21% of American pre pregnancies end in abortion? But that means that 79% do not. <coughs> and you know, while, while you might hear the statistic that half of all marriages end in divorce, and that might make you think, why then would anyone ever get married? Did you know that in 2008, there were less than 17 divorces for every 1,000 married women? according to the National Center for Family and Marriage Research. Only 17 for every 1,000 married women. Did you know that despite all of the gun violence in our country today, that guns in the United States are used over 80 times more often to protect a life than to take it? Did you know that despite the fact that our televisions are, are full of, of filth, and, and portray Americans in, in many lights that are not godly, that only 11% of Americans live together without being married? That means that almost 90% of Americans and American young people and American young adults and American adults don't live together without being married. And did you know that despite all the talk of funding cuts and how we're downgrading our military, that the U.S. remains the strongest military in the world by far? One example for you, the United States Navy has 19 aircraft carriers. Do you know how many the rest of the world has combined? The rest of the world combined has only 12. See, men and women across this country are taking a stand for Christ. God is working in lives across our nation every day. The stories are there, but you have to look for them. Because Satan doesn't want you to know about the good that's happening in the world. He wants you to be defeated and to live in a state of discouragement. He wants you to believe that not only is America going down the drain, but it's already gone. But it's just not so. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of evil in our world today. There's a lot of evil in our country today. But when we say that... Because we see things that are so bad that we need to make America great again. We have to remember that the devil doesn't want us to know what made America great in the first place. The devil doesn't want us to thank God for the blessings of liberty and freedom that we have today. And no matter what anyone says, an election is not going to make America great again. Because it wasn't an election that made America great in the first place. What made America great is what America was founded upon. Biblical principles, the Judeo-Christian principles found in the word, word of God, the book that we call the Bible, the words of the Bible, the Bible verses that are plastered all throughout our capital in Washington, D.C., from the Ten Commandments to the, in the Supreme Court to the Jefferson Memorial, you cannot visit a national monument and not see biblical references everywhere you go. And while many people have tried to cover over our American heritage or say that our founders weren't Christian or that biblical principles weren't in play in our founding, the opposite is true. In fact, the signers of the Declaration not only declare that our rights are God-given, that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, but they gave credit to God over and over again in speeches and letters and communications. And you can look them up. Wallbuilders.com is a great historical resource for this. But I just want to look at some of the quotes from men that signed our Declaration of Independence. Are you ready? 
here's one from John Adams. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. He also said, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and that every member would regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. What a utopia, what a paradise would this region be? And I submit to you today that the reason America is great is because our founders built our nation upon those very principles. John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, he didn't sign the declaration, but he was the son of a signer. He said, in the chain of human events, the birthday of the nation is indisputably linked with the birthday of the Savior. The Declaration of Independence laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. Wow. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, Surgeon General of the Continental Army, he said, I do not believe that the Constitution was the offspring of inspiration, but I am as satisfied that it is as much the work of a divine providence as any of the miracles recorded in the Old or New Testament. John Witherspoon, another signer of the Declaration, president of Princeton, he said that he is the best friend to American liberty who is the most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion and who sets himself with the greatest firmness to bear down profanity and immorality of every kind. Whoever is an avowed enemy of God, I scruple not to call him an enemy to his country. We have George Washington. George Washington said, you do well to wish to, earn, to learn our arts and way of life, and above all, above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happy people than you are. He said, while we are zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not to be inattentive to the higher duties of religion, to the distinguished character of a patriot. It should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of a Christian. George Washington also said the blessing and protection of heaven are at all times necessary, but especially so in times of public distress and danger. The general hopes and trusts that every officer and man will endeavor to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. That's from George Washington, the founder, the father, if you will, of our nation. Richard Stockton, be a name you don't know, he's also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He wrote this to his children. He said, As my children will have frequent occasion of perusing this instrument and may probably be particularly impressed with the last words of their father, I think it proper here not only to subscribe to the entire belief of the great and leading doctrines of the Christian religion, such as the being of God, the universal defection and depravity of human nature, the divinity of the person and the completeness of the redemption purchased by the blessed Savior, the necessity of the operations of the divine spirit, of divine faith accompanied with a habitual virtuous life and the universality of the divine providence but also in the bowels of a father's affection to exhort and charge my children that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and that the way of life held up in the Christian system is calculated for the most complete happiness that can be enjoyed in this moral state and that all occasions of vice and immorality is injurious either immediately or consequentially even in this life. 
This is these are things that the signers are saying. These are things that the founders of our country wrote. Roger Sherman, another name you may not know. You should. Did you know that only six men signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution? Roger Sherman is one of those men. He was also one of the framers of the Bill of Rights, served as a U.S. senator and a judge. He said this. He said, I believe that there is one only living and true God existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are a revelation from God and a complete rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him that he made man at first perfectly holy that the first man sinned and as he was the public head of his posterity that all became sinners in consequence of his first transgression are wholly indisposed to that which is good and inclined to evil and on account of sin are liable to all the miseries of this life to death and to the pains of hell forever I believe that God did send his own son to become man die in the room instead of sinners and thus to lay a foundation for the offer of pardon and salvation to all mankind so as all may be saved who are willing to accept the gospel offer. I believe a visible church to be a congregation of those who make a credible profession of their faith in Christ and obedience to him, joined by the bond of the covenant. I believe that the sacraments of the New Testament are baptism and the Lord's Supper. I believe that the souls of believers are at their death made perfectly holy and immediately taken to glory. That at the end of this world there will be a resurrection of the dead and a final judgment of all mankind when the righteous shall be publicly acquitted by Christ the judge and admitted to everlasting life and glory and the wicked be sentenced to everlasting lasting punishment that's from roger sherman one of only six men who signed both the declaration and the constitution and yet people today the media today leftists today will tell you that our founders were not christian they did not espouse christian values and they did not build our country upon christian principles and nothing could be further from the truth even thomas jefferson one of the favorites of those who will say that we were not a christian nation even Jefferson, he said this, he said, The practice of morality being necessary for the well-being of society, God has taken care to impress its precepts so inevitably on our hearts that they shall not be effaced by the subtleties of our brain. We all agree in the obligation of the moral principles of Jesus, and nowhere will they be found delivered in greater purity than in his discourses. The doctrines of Jesus are simple, and tend all to the happiness of man. He also said, I am a real Christian. That is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Benjamin Franklin, also one of the six men who signed both the Declaration and the Constitution. He said, as to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire... I think the system of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. Wow. And in what may be called possibly Franklin's most famous address in the Constitutional Convention, so after the Declaration's been signed and now they're at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin stood up. By this time, he is 80 one years old. The Constitutional Convention had been meeting for five weeks. The larger states were insisting at the time that congressional representation be based on the population of the states. The smaller states wanted a one state, one, one vote. So each state got one vote regardless of how many people lived in them. And it was it, the debate raged in such a manner that it was possible that our, our union would dissolve even in its early, early stages. And 
James Madison uh, was there taking notes, and he recorded this account of Benjamin Franklin standing up in the Constitutional Convention in 1787, and he said this. He said, Mr. President, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks' close attendance and continual reasonings with each other are different sentiments on almost every question. Several of the last producing as many no's as eyes is, methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. We indeed seem to feel of our own want of political wisdom since we have been running about in search of it. We have gone back to the ancient history models from models of government. I'm sorry, we've gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different forms of those republics which have been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution now no longer exist. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe, but find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation of this assembly, going as it were, groping as it were in the dark to find out political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us how has it happened sir that we have not hitherto once thought of a humbly applying to the father of lights to illuminate our understandings in the beginning of the contest with great britain when we were sensible of danger we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection so he's saying during uh, the proceedings which led up to the declaration and the times around that, they prayed daily. Franklin continued, Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword to future ages. And what is worse? Mankind may hereafter, from this unfortunate instance, despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth, henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. The motion was seconded and passed. That's at the Constitutional Convention. Benjamin Franklin. Amazing. Do you know the names of the signers of the Declaration of Independence? Do you know the names of those who signed the Constitution? There's a great book by wall builders. Uh, it's Lives of the Signers. There's, they have another one called Wives of the Signers. I highly recommend them both. They are great resources. Most of the signers of the Declaration experienced great hardships during the Revolutionary War up to and including death. In fact, many of them didn't actually see to live the independence for which they had pledged their lives, fortune, and sacred honor. 
Two were wounded in battle, in addition to those that died. The two wounded in battle were George Walton and Thomas Hayward. They were both then held prisoners. Arthur Middleton was also captured and held as a prisoner, as was Richard Stockton. Seventeen of them lost their homes and properties, including Josiah Bartlett, whose home was set on fire. William Ellery, who also had his home set on fire. Lewis Morris, his property was destroyed. Richard Stockton had his lands devastated and his library burned. John Hart's house was ransacked. His mill and crops were destroyed. George Clymer had everything that he owned destroyed. Lyman Hall had his property confiscated. Uh, Francis Lewis had his library burned also, and his house was plundered. The Reverend John Witherspoon, his house was invaded, and his theological library was burned. Many were forced to flee their homes, escaping just in time to avoid capture, including Francis Hopkinson, John Hart, George Clymer, Thomas Jefferson, Arthur Middleton's family, Lyman Hall, Francis Lewis, and William Floyd. Others dealt with severe family hardship and loss. Abraham Clark lost two of his three sons to prison, torture, and abuse. Francis Lewis's wife was held as a prisoner for several months, during which time her health deteriorated to the point that she died prematurely. And John Witherspoon's oldest son, James, was killed during the Battle of Germantown. You see, our founders didn't just pledge their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. Many of them lost their lives, their families, their fortunes. They were patriots. And when we get back from the break, I'm going to tell you the story of one of our early American patriots. Today's programming is brought to you by Krispy Kreme Donuts Fundraising Opportunities. Krispy Kreme fundraisers are available year-round and can take place over one to two days or one to two weeks. If your educational, religious, community, or charitable cause is looking for a fun way to meet your financial goals, Krispy Kreme can help. Krispy Kreme provides free fundraising materials for your use, and you can visit KrispyKreme.com fundraising or your local Krispy Kreme to learn more. Our thanks to Krispy Kreme for their support of KVXL programming. We're going to play, play Proud to be an American by Lee Greenwood. We'll be back in just a minute. Don't go away. My country gives us the opportunity to advance according to our ambition and abilities. I am an American. My country means love of freedom, justice, democracy, and equality. I am an American. My country believes in the worth of every person. I am an American. My country gives us the privilege of expressing beliefs or opinions without fear of persecution. I am an American. My country is a democracy. It is our duty to keep it that way. I am an American. My country helps an individual grow. I am an American. My country protects those who need help. I am an American. My country gives me the right to speak without fear. I am an American. My country promises life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I am an American. My country is and will always remain the land of the free and the home of the brave. I am an American. My country is one that we should protect and defend. I am an American. My country requires intelligent, informed, and active citizenship. I am an American. My country meets any need or suffering with love and loyalty. I am an American. My country is the servant, not the master. I am an American. 
My country seeks fairness and justice. I am an American. My country allows the free exchange of information. I am an American. I believe my country offers me a bright future. I am an American. I love my country. I am an American. As Americans devoted to freedom and all that our great country has to offer, please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. Those in uniform salute. Those not in uniform, please place your right hand over your heart. Ready? Begin. Albemarle County, Virginia, June 3rd, 1781, 10.15 p.m. A thin dogwood branch slashed across the rider's face like a leather whip, but the sting was no worse than any of the dozen that came before. A quarter mile earlier, a limb had cut him so deeply that blood flowed from a gash high on his cheek to the corner of his mouth. Captain John Jack Jewett rode on. With forty miles to go, the muscular twenty-six-year-old sliced through the night and gave thanks for the full moon. It could not protect his face or his clothes, but it might deliver him safely. He and his bay mare Sally, safely to the green lawns of Thomas Jefferson's beloved and now endangered Monticello estate. It was possible, Jewett knew, that the future of the revolution might very well depend on how fast he got there. The Cuckoo Tavern Louisa, Virginia, one hour earlier. Jack Jewett had decided to live dangerously. The British army was on the march in Virginia. Even that traitor Benedict Arnold had been assigned there, and Jewett had been lucky enough to capture one of Arnold's men. He might have been content to simply turn the man over to army jailers. But a daring idea had seized him. Jewett's captive was an unusually big man, roughly his own size. Off with your clothes, Jewett ordered him. The prisoner's brilliant red coat festooned with equally grand gold braid fit him as though it had been tailored just for his six-foot-four-inch frame. The grand plumed hat only added to the picture. Now dressed as his enemy, Jack Jewett mounted his steed Sally, said to be the best-bred and fleetest of foot in seven counties, and hurried off to see if he might find more of the enemy. The British were up to no good, and Jewett wanted to know exactly what that might be. Not long after riding off in his new attire, Jewett quickly stumbled across the British in the form of a fearsome detachment of green dragoons near the local tavern. He rode up cautiously, worried that someone might willingly or accidentally reveal his true identity. Jack Jewett was playing a very dangerous game. A stranger wiped sweat from his unshaven face with his spoiled coat sleeve as he passed Jewett outside the tavern doors. Captain, do something about this dreadful June air, would you? The man laughed over his shoulder and slyly shouted, "'What's a soldier of the king for if not to fight for better weather?' Jewett wasn't sure if he had been recognized, but he certainly wasn't about to ask. In any case, he remained outdoors, enjoying what passed for a breeze. Sally whinnied from her hitching post. "'I know, Sally. I know.' Jewett pretended to be absorbed in his own thoughts while he tended to his steed, but as more tavern patrons came and went, he eavesdropped on their conversations." Today, with British cavalry loitering just outside the cuckoo, the locals were more, were more guarded than usual. Jewett listened in to their still energetic discussions, which became more energetic and less guarded with each draft of hard cider. They soon veered toward politics. The stubborn boys in Maryland came around, 
a patron shouted. Did you hear? They finally signed the articles. I suppose every man in colony has their price. A feisty argument erupted over Maryland and Virginia's simmering land rights feud and Maryland's long-delayed ratification of the Articles of Confederation. The Second Continental Congress had become the Confederation Congress three months earlier, but most people still didn't know quite what to call their fledging government. The discussion turned to Thomas Jefferson and the impending end of his tenure as Virginia's governor. He's in mourning, one guffawed. Another pointed out for several days there might be no governor. Appoint me, said another. But none of this, of course, was Jack Jewett's real interest. He was there to hear what foes, not friends, might reveal. So far, he had heard nothing to justify risking the noose. Perhaps he thought it was time to call a halt to this perilous adventure and just ride away. Suddenly, Sally called out again and skittishly pulled her rope. Jewett moved to provide her with more water, and as he bent down, something caught his ear. He wasn't sure, but... Yes, right before him was the infamous Colonel Banaster Tarleton, commander of the Dragoons, one of the most hated of all the new nation's foes. Sally had always been a good judge of bad character. Jewett had difficulty making out exactly what Tarleton said. Fearing to advance any closer toward the colonel, he strained to catch whatever information he could. The words were soft, and the background noise made it difficult to hear clearly, but Jewett was able to understand two words clearly, Monticello and Charlottesville. And that was all he needed to know. Colonel Tarleton's uniform clung to his chest like a wet wool blanket. Like most British soldiers fighting the war, Tarleton believed the only worse thing the only thing worse than the insects and thick Virginia humidity was the morale of both America's people and Washington's army. The would-be nation's independence hung by a thread in the early summer days of 1781, and Tarleton lusted to sever it with his saber. General George Washington knew the soldiers' grievances against their officers in the Continental Congress over supply shortages and pay were legitimate. He'd experienced deplorable conditions and supply problems himself during a brutal winter in Valley Forge just three years earlier. He knew what shoeless, bleeding, frozen feet and empty stomachs did to a patriot's mind. Tarleton and his British commanders were well aware of the festering discontent that racked the Continental camp. It was their job to stir the pot and hope that discontent would boil over into chaos, and so far that job was going very well. The most important year of the war had begun with the New Year's Day mutiny in the ranks of the Pennsylvania Continentals. It was no secret that many of the Pennsylvanians had been unpaid since receiving the $20 bounty bestowed for their three-year enlistments. Tired and angry, with their families facing destitution back home without them, they were ready to walk away from the front lines and return to their loved ones. Meanwhile, other colonies were enticing men with much larger sums, as high as $1,000 in neighboring New Jersey. General Washington and his officers did their best to prevent defections to the British, but Tarleton and his allies schemed at every turn to lure them away with fortune and impressive military appointments. With this strategy, they hoped to break the American spirit and finally deliver victory for the king and parliament. Washington, however, was intelligent enough to know that additional pay alone wouldn't solve the problem. What good was another $20 when you had no musket balls or powder and wore the same ragged, lice-infested uniforms for weeks on end? Washington recognized what the British already knew and were capitalizing on. His men couldn't fight both the Royal Army and such insufferable conditions for much longer. Altered to the mutiny along the Pennsylvania li- alerted to the mutiny along the Pennsylvania line, Washington stood with his men and demanded that additional resources be provided. After negotiations, and despite the British using the uprising to further hunt for loyalists among the disenchanted American soldiers, the episode ended peacefully and the vast majority of soldiers were back in the fight within weeks. 
Tarleton was impressed by such loyalty, even to a cause he considered disloyal. But, to his great delight, a mutiny in the New Jersey line just a few weeks later ended quite differently. Washington had quickly realized that the Pennsylvania line's mutiny would only inspire other disgruntled troops to demand similar concessions. He needed to send an important, possibly war-saving message to the whole army. Mutinies would not be tolerated. He quickly stamped out New Jersey's insurgency and court-martialed its ringleaders. Two were executed. All 12 members of the firing squad had also participated in the mutiny. George Washington, when he had to, could play very rough indeed. Though he liked little about Americans in general, Tarleton secretly admired Washington's aggressive tactics to quell the insurrection. If given the chance, Tarleton would have done the same thing with his own men, though he would have liked to carry out the executions himself. Unlike some of his colleagues, he liked to get his hands dirty. Attired in a bright white coat and high black boots, polished to a shine as bright as the Virginia sun, Colonel Tarleton now watched two men stumble out of Cuckoo Tavern and exchange blows. Such unlinked cubs, he muttered to himself. Then, without a word, he pointed with his saber west up the road, and his 200 dragoons fell in line behind him. Snap! Another branch punished Jewett's forehead, but the rider knew his wounds and shredded clothing would have to wait. Plus, with Tarleton and his green dragoons headed west on the only main road to Monticello, Jewett knew that the mountain trails and back roads overgrown with dense thickets were his only hope for beating the British to Thomas Jefferson's front door. Sally stumbled to her right side, and Jewett hung on tight to keep his massive frame upright. His mind wandered to images of Jefferson and members of the Virginia legislature gathered in the safety of the governor's famous retreat on the outskirts of Charlotte. Charlottesville. The great patriot Patrick Henry was there. So were Benjamin Harrison, Richard Henry Lee, and Thomas Nelson, each of them signers of the Declaration of Independence. They'd all fled Richmond in the red-hot pursuit of British General Charles Cornwallis as the war had moved south. Even the most intoxicated patron at Cuckoo Tavern that night would have understood that the men atop the mountain at Monticello were in great danger. Relatively peaceful conditions in Virginia had sent the majority of its best fighting men northward. The local militia, though spirited and anxious to break free from British tyranny, were too few and without enough resources to battle the brutal Tarleton. We have Jefferson. Jewett's imagination heard the words burn across the hills and directly to the ears of General Cornwallis. He knew it wouldn't be long before news of Jefferson's capture, or, he shivered at the thought, death would sail across the seas to the king. It would be shorter still until word spread among the colonies that the British had taken the author of their Declaration of Independence, and what then? Morale and optimism were already in short supply. The capture of patriots like Jefferson, Henry, and Lee might just be more than the fragile army could handle. More voices found audience in Jewett's mind. We have them all. Virginia is ours. One signer, two signers, three signers, four. Hanging from the gallows, traitors no more. Jewett knew the lives of important men weren't the only jewels at stake if Tarleton's infamous butchers successfully took Charlottesville and Monticello. Both the city and the mansion that overlooked it held gold, silver, and something much more valuable. Information. The patriots gathered at Jefferson's estate would surely be discussing war plans in coordination with their top Virginia spies. If Tarleton and his dragoons succeeded, they could ride off with men, maps, and even letters. Perhaps Jewett allowed himself to wonder... Sensitive correspondence to General Washington himself. He drove his heels into Sally's sides and urged her to gallop even faster. 
The men and horses need a pause. One of Tarleton's lieutenants had approached him to deliver the news. Unaware that Jewett was dashing ahead via the backwood trails to Monticello, Tarleton and his men rested for several hours at a large plantation near the Louisa Courthouse. Tarleton sat near at his own private fire at the edge of the camp, satisfied that they'd ridden that night with duty and purpose, if not breathless urgency. Weeks earlier, General Cornwallis had been provided with an intercepted dispatch revealing that Thomas Jefferson and members of the Virginia legislature had convened in Charlottesville. Cornwallis assigned the task of tracking and capturing Jefferson to Colonel Tarleton, an officer Cornwallis admired for his athleticism, strength, and daring. For better, and sometimes Cornwallis knew for worse, Tarleton was known for his impatience in battle. Tarleton had found great personal satisfaction and public acclaim for early war success in raids carried out in New York, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. When the war moved south, Tarleton added to his fearsome reputation at the battles of Cowpens, Blackstocks, Fishing Creeks, Camden, Monk's Corner, and Charleston. But it was at Waxhaw, South Carolina, that his legacy had finally been sealed. There, Tarleton attacked the unprepared Continental Army with a vengeance and overwhelmed them. With surrender, the Americans' only option, Tarleton coldly ignored their white flag and allowed his troops to butcher as many Patriot soldiers as they could. More than 100 Continentals died and another 200 were injured or captured. Sir, may I? One of the younger British dragoons approached Tarleton at the fire's edge as the other men rested to prepare for the rest of the ride to Monticello. Tarleton nodded without looking up and the two men sat in silence for a long time. Did you know I was just 23 years of age when promoted to Lieutenant Colonel of the British Legion? Tarleton finally asked. I did not, the young soldier said. Tarleton looked at him. But they say my legend is even older than I am. For the next half hour, the leader of the dragoons spoke in the third person, painting himself as a rare breed who was simultaneously fearless and feared by others. Colonel Bannister Tarleton doesn't desire a claim from the throne for his courage alone, but also for his genius. Our gracious royal does not always appreciate a soldier whose mind is as sharp as his sword. You refer to Butcher Man and Bloody Tarleton? That's me. I am indeed more hated by the traitors than most of our countrymen. Some of the things they say I've done are true. Some are not. But Colonel Tarleton does not choose to quarrel with the differences. The soldier sat motionless as Tarleton described how the enemy had turned against him and how, when encountering surrendering troops, he had taken no mercy. The dragoon laughed nervously until Tarleton pulled him up a short pulled him up short with an order, raising his thunderous shouts that all around him might hear. Now let us show them through action whether the words they say about Tarleton are indeed true to Charlottesville. Several miles up the road from where they'd rested, Colonel Tarleton came across a a caravan of twelve American supply wagons with clothing and arms headed for South Carolina. He took great pleasure in burning it. As flames filled the Piedmont sky, Tarleton hoped the winds would move the thick smoke away from Marticello. He wondered aloud to a lieutenant whether Jefferson's servants would be taking turns throughout the night watching guard. Or perhaps Jefferson thought the grounds of his cherished Monticello provided ignorant, blissful security. Let them sleep, he said, watching another supply wagon smolder. Soon after daybreak, Tarleton and his soldiers stopped at Castle Hill, home of Dr. Thomas Walker, who had once been guardian to the young orphan Thomas Jefferson. Tarleton arrested two legislatures in their nightshirts and grinned at the thought that the day's successes had only begun. Before leaving Walker's large estate, Tarleton ordered Dr. Walker and his wife to prepare breakfast for the hungry British Legion. With full stomachs and renewed vigor, Tarleton and his dragoons resumed their race toward Charlottesville. 
but his full belly came at a high price, the cost of precious time lost in the pursuit of his great prize, Thomas Jefferson. Faster, Sally! Jewett flashed through the final line of trees and across the meadow in front of Monticello. Go! Moments later, he leapt from the horse and, without bothering to hitch her, sprinted down the brick path to the front door of Jefferson's home. Arise! Arise! Jewett pounded on the heavy door just before sunrise. Bloody Tarleton and his dream green dragoons are not far behind! A servant appeared and rushed Jewett into the home where Jefferson met them in the spacious front hall. What is it? Jefferson demanded, adjusting his silken nightrobe as he entered. But his concern for his own disheveled appearance vanished at the sight of the bloody and battered Jewett. My lord, what is it? You've escaped capture? No, sir, gasped Jefferson's visitor. I'm Captain Jack Jewett, 16th Regiment of the Virginia Militia. Of course. Governor, a large force of British is approaching Charlottesville. They're led by Tarleton. Are you sure? I am. How many in his command, Jefferson asked, his manner growing more grave with each syllable. Two hundred. Maybe more. Most of them green dragoons. Have they arrived in town? Jefferson asked as his house guests, woken by the commotion, began arriving in the hall. I cannot say. I've ridden through the night from Louisa on back trails, and they're moving on the main road. Jefferson extended a hand to Jewett and took closer notice of his torn clothes and scratched, bruised face. Well done. He turned to a servant. When the soldiers arise, raise the flag over the dome, retract it only when they've left and it's safe to return. He pivoted to his house guest and announced with authority, Gentlemen, let us secure our belongings quickly and depart. As the others dressed, Jefferson calmly ate breakfast, sorted through sensitive state papers crucial for the success or failure of the revolution, and gathered his wife and children to be sent 20 miles to the west. There they would take refuge at the Enniskirley Plantation, home of his friend and business associate, Colonel John Coles. Jefferson had not a moment to spare as Tarleton's crack cavalrymen and Royal Welsh mounted infantry began to invade the grounds of his estate. But even under the intense pressure, he could not forgo his pronounced sense of southern hospitality. "'Glass of water, Captain Jewett?' Jefferson asked. "'Yes, Governor,' answered Jewett with a smile. "'I think I could use one about now.' "'Soon the preparations were complete. "'God bless Charlottesville,' Jefferson whispered "'before mounting the horse that had been saddled for him. "'The Governor looked at his home one last time "'before kicking the stallion and riding up nearby Carter's Mountain. "'As he did, enemy horsemen clattered through his front door, "'riding through the entire depth of his great mansion and out the back. "'And God bless Jack Jewett.' At a safe distance from the advancing dragoons, Jefferson stopped for one last look at his beloved Monticello and sadly watched as a flag of occupation was raised over its stately dome. As Jefferson and the other legislators, legislators fled, Jewett rode furiously to his father's inn. He burst through the front door with the sight of his crimson British uniform startling the elder Jewett, who soon recovered his senses, however, and the two embraced. Quickly, Jack warned him and the several Virginia legis legislators he sheltered to, to flee for Stanton in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. He relayed the prior evening's ride, and his father's eyes gleamed with pride, for John Jewett Sr. was as great a patriot as his son. He had risked his life to sign the crucial Albemarle Declaration of 1779, which supported independence. He provided beef for Continental armies, and he had two other sons in George Washington's service, and had lost a fourth son at the 1777 Battle of Brandywine. When the young captain finished, the elder, elder Jewett told him, Your work isn't done yet, son. General Edward Stevens is here, and he's wounded in the thigh. He was hit at Guilford Courthouse in North Carolina and is still too unsteady to run. He's healing, but not yet strong enough, I fear, to survive a chase. Jewett knew that Tarleton's potential capture of Stevens, who was also a state senator, would fuel British confidence. The general's lack of mobility was a problem, but he had a plan. 
With his father's help, Jewett assembled a small militia to meet the British at the river. Then they described the general in a shabby cloak and helped him mount a borrowed horse. Meanwhile, Jack Jewett dressed himself in a clean blue continental uniform and made off in the other direction toward aboard Sally. He was barely finished and mounted when the British began to close in. Tarleton and his men soon spotted Jewett, whom they correctly assumed to be an American officer, and gave frantic chase, ignoring Edwards entirely. Jewett led the British on a winding pursuit through the woods, smiling all the way. Just as his all-night ride had allowed Jefferson to escape, this mid-morning ride would do the same for General Stevens. When the exhausted British finally gave up, Jewett stopped to let his horse drink from a creek not far from where he'd started the previous night at Cuckoo Tavern. Jewett took a long drink, too, letting the cool water run down his neck and into his uniform. A breeze kissed the trees, and his faithful horse gave a grateful whinny. I know, Sally. I know. Colonel Tarleton had arrived in Charlottesville not long after Jewett had come through to warn its citizens. Tarleton and his men destroyed goods and uniforms, along with hundreds of muskets and barrels of gunpowder. They also freed a number of prisoners and captured seven remaining assemblymen, including Daniel Boone. All were later returned unharmed. When the Virginia legislature reconvened in Staunton three days later, they voted to reward Jewett's heroics with an elegant sword and a pair of pistols. They recognized immediately what many others would not learn for days, months, years, or perhaps ever. Jack Jewett's courageous ride may have saved not only Thomas Jefferson and a slew of other patriots, but also the very country they were so desperately fighting to free. Later that year, in October 1781, Lieutenant General Lord Charles Cornwallis found himself outwitted and surrounded at Yorktown. Brigadier General Edward Stevens, whose life Jewett very well may have saved, led the 3rd Brigade of 750 men during the battle. Cornwallis's surrender at Yorktown effectively ended the revolution that, if not for Jack Jewett, the Paul Revere of the South, and his incredible ride four months earlier, might have been lost. That's the story of Jack Jewett and the ride that saved America from Glenn Beck's books, Miracle and Massacres, True and Untold Stories of the Making of America. It's an excellent book. And we are out of time, but I want to wish you and your family a very happy, a very safe 4th of July. Don't forget to enjoy the freedoms that we have and to thank God for the blessings of liberty that he has so richly bestowed upon us. All week long here on The Frigal Show, we're going to be talking about the greatness of America, what's made her great, what keeps her great, what makes her great again. We're going to be telling untold stories like that one. We're going to be hearing about different founders of our country, their lives. We're going to have some American heroes on the show throughout the week, and you do not want to miss anything. So be here, KVXL. You can stream us online at kvxl101.com. Listen live at 101.1 FM in Las Vegas, and check us out on iTunes and SoundCloud uh, just by searching The Frittle Show, and you're good to go. We're going to play, of course, what else? The National Anthem, and we will see you back here tomorrow. Happy Independence Day, everyone. <laughs>